This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. In 1812, Luisa Fascio, just 15 years old, barely escaped the Seminole Indians when they destroyed her family's beautiful New Switzerland plantation on the St. John's River. Frantically searching for safety throughout the wilderness of Florida, the family first endured the bloody Patriots War, only to see their new house destroyed by a hurricane. Next, they sought haven in Fernandina until their home burned to the ground and invading pirates captured the town. Fleeing once more, the Fascios returned and rebuilt New Switzerland Plantation, where Luisa became its charming hostess. When the plantation was threatened once again by the Seminoles, Luisa fled to St. Augustine, where she used her business skills and hospitality to create her career as an innkeeper, one of the few respectable occupations available to a woman of her standing. Soon, Miss Luisa's lovely and famous boarding house began to offer the best lodging and the finest table in tropical Florida. Fascio's reputation for fine food and accommodations grew. Under Fascio's management, the house on Avila Street became known as Miss Fascio's. The establishment was a fixture in St. Augustine until her death in 1875. Eugenia Price made Luisa Fascio a major character in her 1965 novel, Margaret's Story, the third volume in Price's Florida trilogy. One of its settings is Fascio's boarding house in St. Augustine. The Seminole Wars Foundation, producer of this podcast, holds this trilogy within its 2500 title collection in the Frank Laumer Library for Seminole War Studies. In this episode, we'll learn Louisa's story through a first-hand impression, courtesy of Diane Thompson Jacoby, an actress who performs one-woman shows about notable ladies from the state's illustrious past. Diane slips into her impression of Louisa to tell the story of East Florida in the Seminole Wars period. Listeners who would like to learn more about Diane and the characters she portrays can visit her Facebook page, Diane Thompson Jacoby, or by visiting her webpage at www.mrsflagler.weebly.com. Diane Thompson Jacoby, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. It's wonderful to be here this morning, Patrick. And welcome also to your alter ego, Miss Louisa Fascio. I'll be happy to tell you a bit about my life and how I came to be on that dreadful day. My parents' plantation on the St. John's River. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's New Switzerland, the largest plantation and the first on the St. John's River. I was born there in 1797. My grandfather before that had come over from Switzerland. Both of my grandparents were quite cultured, well-to-do folks. And my grandfather had understood when he was doing business in London, he could actually have land grants from Spain. He found that out in London. So he was able to get a large land grant right there on the St. John's River. Our listeners know that Spain established La Florida. However, they lost it in the French and Indian War, and the British held the territory for 20 years. But then the British lost the war with America for its independence, and Spain took its colony back in the 1780s. The Americans took control of the territory in 1821. That's where I was brought up, in the lap of culture, on a large plantation with my sisters and brother. 
sadly, my mother had passed shortly after my birth. My father, in three years, married again my lovely, lovely stepmother. We had many fascinating visitors come over from Europe and so forth. And everything was very peaceful until, until that day. Oh, my. I, I was just 15 years of age. That's when they burned the house. This was a Seminole attack in 1812 during the so-called Patriots War. I heard them. I was in the parlor, and I heard the yells and the screams. I heard them yelling, and I looked out, and I saw them running, running towards our house, and, and we ran. I, I gathered my, my sisters and, and the family and two of our people, and we, we ran towards a small boat that, that uh, Scipio knew about, and, uh, and we all clambered aboard that. And I looked back to see that they had burned they had begun burning our beautiful plantation home. Oh, it was so frightening when they spotted us. They spotted us as we were in the river now. And I could hear, I could hear the sound of the musket balls. And I saw them drop into the water around us. I'll never forget that. Well, we escaped that time. But sadly, sadly, New Switzerland Plantation did not. What specifically led to this attack? Well, the way I understand it was that they were quite disgruntled. They had, apparently, they had lived their lives here for over centuries. Uh, and slowly, slowly, Europeans had come in and begun to colonize and so forth. During that time, they eventually found themselves in the central part of the state, as opposed to the uh, coast, where, they, where many had been located, thousands and thousands of the original Indians. Getting up to the modern day, to early 1800s, many Native people had escaped from the English colonies to the north. They had escaped down here to La Florida, where they were safe. And they, they formed quite a, quite a colony of people. And slowly but surely, their land was being taken away from them. And that's what I understand was their major grievance. And I'm sure their anger and frustration at seeing fine homes like ours that were wonderful businesses. So they began to attack the plantation. These altercations between Americans and Seminole and Spanish have gone down in history as the so-called Patriots War. Oh, yes, <laughs> the Patriot War. I swear we went from war with the Seminoles. They called it the Florida War. We went from that, and finally in our little boat, finally we arrived at a very tiny settlement called St. Mary's, Georgia. And there, Father, Father knew someone, and we were given a small house as shelter. And during the time, the Patriots War, Patriots as they call themselves, they were nothing more than a, than a group of Georgia farmers to go down into Spanish territory, La Florida, to take what they wished. We battled down in there to burn plantations to, to take whatever they could, and all because at this point, America wished to add La Florida to its territory. That's why these vicious farmers were given funds to attack, to attack Florida. Georgia was attacking Florida. And my father, well, he was pressed into, into serving in that war when we had relocated to St. Mary's. I saw him, I saw him one time, from the roof of our little house, I, I saw him as, uh, as as the enemy, the patriots, that were attacking, and we could hear the we could hear the sound of muskets. And uh, my dear little mother-in-law, she she had her little infant, and she had given birth right there in this house. 
and she would help her in fear of the dreadful time. So we were a short period of time in St. Mary's, thank goodness, three months. But what finally drove us out was not the wars, but an act of God in the late summer and early fall. Terrible storms sweep through this area, and they did one night. A terrible storm hit St. Mary's. Oh, we could hear it. We could hear it in our little house. We could hear the winds blowing. And we were right near the river, you know. As we peeped out, we could see the water rising, rising and rising and rising around us. And then we heard a terrible, terrible sound of wind. And all of a sudden, the house shook, and the house blew apart. We scampered best we could out from under it, but was struck with the debris. The whole roof came crashing down into the water, and the water had risen to this point where I fear we might have drowned had it not been for a neighbor who rescued us in his little boat. And from that time, we went down back into La Florida, and that's when we settled in Fernandina. In Fernandina, we found Haven. It was quite interesting, you see. During the, the Patriots' War, it was all tied into the War of 1812, you know. And that, that's when Britain wished to take back their colonies <laughs> and, and began attacking the seaport of the new United States. They wished to have a seaport of their own. They, they had been locked out of, uh, the British had been locked out of <clears throat> seaports. They had known about the wonderful seaport that is in Fernandina. It's a very deep one. They approached La Florida who gave them permission to use that seaport. And so when we arrived there, we found that it was a colony of British people living there, which was quite lovely. So we did not see very much action there in a military sense, but we, we made very dear friends with some of the British officers, and we entertained. But our first house that was given to us, bless their heart, it was a very nice plantation home. But let me tell you what happened. One evening, my dear little sister, just a year younger than I, Eliza, we were sound asleep in our bedchamber. When I was awakened by a smell, a very terrible, smoky smell, and then I saw the lights again, a young another fire, a fire, our house is a fire, and I grabbed Eliza, we yelled, and we grabbed the young ones and our parents, and we escaped down the steps. Eliza and I both found ourselves on the ground, losing consciousness from the smoke. And when we did recover, well, I found that the house had burned. Oh, I'll tell you, it's difficult for me to sleep through the nights, even to this day. Louisa, so your people came from Switzerland. They were not Americans. We were not Americans. We were Spanish citizens because La Florida was still at that time a Spanish territory. Father had considerable holdings and property, so... That's why we were offered home to stay in and subsequently another home. That was quite efficient. It did not burn to the ground, but it, it is a confusing situation. Here are the, a small British colony in a Spanish-held territory fighting, fighting for the British who are fighting against uh, the United States. At that time, we were not Americans. Actually, <laughs> I say that, and I was speaking French and Spanish as much as English. You see, my grandfather had that heritage. He was a brilliant man. And when he arrived here in Little St. Augustine, it was, it was just a little village. And, and that's when he began to build, build our plantation on the St. John's River. He was an extremely educated man. 
and he educated his son, my father. So we grew up speaking multiple languages, actually, well-read and interested in current events. Many people fled, of course, as they should, when the British took occupation. 1763 is when they took possession, stayed in possession until 1784. And during that time, all the Spanish people that had lived there for centuries fled because they wished to have their own religion. Any people of color, whether they would be free or not, fled because they feared that the British would, would see them as slaves. So many of them went down, most of them went down to Cuba to live. But then everything switched back again to to Spanish possession in 1784. We stayed three years in Fernandina. I'm remembering the date. We moved in 1814, so that would have been 1870 when we departed. But interesting things happened in Fernandina. Not only did we entertain the British officers and so forth, and they were many of them were our fine friends, but we saw some changes coming. And the changes came about... Well, you probably know that Britain did not win the War of 18 and 12. They were forced to depart. But before they did, I'd like share a personal note with you. As we entertained, we would have dances and so forth. And I met a young man, a young officer, a young British officer, so handsome. So handsome in his red coat. We became most fond of each other. Many evenings, we danced the night away. And that young man, he asked me to marry him. And I said yes. And sadly... When he left, I never saw him again. I understand that he perished in battle. And I'll tell you this, I will never love another man. That was the love of my life. But back to the politics of Fernandina, a strange thing began to happen. British had left. All of a sudden, the pirates appeared. That's right, pirates, they appeared. From, I understand, from the coast of Texas and Louisiana, Two different sets of pirates decided they would take the deep water port of Fernandina as their own. Louis Ari and Captain Gregor McGregor. And each man, each man wanted to take Fernandina himself and, and run their pirating as a, as a pirate haven. In doing so, they began to terrorize the citizens of Fernandina. It was terrible. If a father, once again, said, for our safety, we must we must leave once again, and we went down further south, closer to the St. John's River, and we stayed with a distant relative in their plantation, San Pablo Plantation. For many years, while Father began to rebuild our plantation, New Switzerland, on the St. John's River. Bernardina, oh, what a town. What were the crops that the plantation produced? Oh, my. Well, virtually anything that would grow there our major, I would say, would be timber. Timber, we had pine trees, we had live oak trees, and we sold much of that. We grew indigo, more valuable than gold by the ounce. Uh, we grew indigo, we grew citrus, oh, beautiful citrus, corn, cotton. And, of course, we shifted on St. John's River. We shifted out and did quite well. We did quite well. The workforce, of course, was as it had been in our first home, our first plantation, New Switzerland's workforce were enslaved people. I understand that the, by the English and then with the Americans, it was quite a cruel system of work, especially up in the tobacco land. They were treated very badly. The Spanish, on the other hand, had more of a worker who lived right there on the home, in their own homes, of course. And they were enslaved, but the Spanish and we in New Switzerland believe that the better they were treated, the better their work would be as one would treat a fine tool well. 
and many of our people were educated. We thought of that and had, had decent living conditions. Not only did we treat them well, but they had the freedom to fish, to hunt. They had, if you will, time off to take care of their own needs, which I understand was not the case in the American slavery system. How did life change when Florida became a U.S. territory? When it became a U.S. territory, <laughs> when Las Florida finally was sold by Spain to America for $5 million, Spain was in terrible straits at that point with Napoleon and all, becoming an American territory for Florida benefited many. But at the same time, it was rather dreadful for any people of color or any Native people. The people of color, whether they be free or not, all their rights were taken away from them. I knew a very wealthy family at the plantation, and the lovely matron of the plantation, well, she was from Africa, and her husband was a white plantation owner, and she lost all of her rights. They fled. She fled to the Bahamas, and many, many people did, if they could, if we didn't And some of realized that now there was no longer a border between Georgia and Florida, and all of those Georgia farmers who wished to, or anyone else, could come right into Florida and take the land they had so coveted for their own. And of course, that meant that meant warring with the Seminoles who had lived there forever. So that was, in my understanding, the origin of Florida War. How did life change for you and your family when Florida became a U.S. territory? I was still, at this point, at New Switzerland. My father rebuilt the plantation, and it was doing splendidly by 1821, when we became a territory. I was, by this time, 26 years old. Sadly, my stepmother had passed at that time, Molly. So I took over the task of hostess, and we had many, many very refined guests visiting, staying for weeks at a time, fathers, friends, and it was quite an intellectual delight. This was the site of the old plantation, and it was really, it became quite huge. At one time, we had associated with our plantation 10,000 people. Now, that meant all of the outbuildings, the village that sprung up, but we were quite prosperous and quite successful during this time. We had a number of lovely years at the plantation. Father was, he was relaxing for the first time, I believe, <laughs> He loves sitting out under the live oaks, reading and uh, entertaining his friends. And, um, and I enjoyed being hostess by that time. Well, Father passed away, and I took over the realm of the plantation. That was quite a challenge, and I do believe I made quite a success of it. But it was not to last, because the criminals were being treated quite horribly. There was talk of, of gathering them up and sending them out to the western states. There was bloodshed everywhere. It became quite dreadful, and I must say many of the plantations were being attacked by the Seminole Indians during this time. So in fear, in fear, I left the plantation. I knew that it was just a matter of time. I gathered the people together, and I told them what was happening, and I left. I left. I knew that my people would be safe. The Negroes would be safe because the Indians, seeing that they were people of color, Often it became part of the group themselves, uh, but they were safe, and I knew that. So the situation was that they burned it to the ground, the Seminoles, the second time. Thanks be to God that Eliza, my sister, and I fled when we did. We saw it. We knew that it would happen. 
and they took what they wanted and they burned it. And I did not sell it at that time. It was not worth much. I held on to it. And my sisters held on to their part of the inheritance. From what I have been told, the workers, many of them fled with the Seminole. I consider to be free people at that time. By the time this happened, Eliza had left for St. Augustine already. She had married. She married a man of medicine, a doctor in St. Augustine, and they had settled down into their home. So I fled to Eliza. I lived with them for a bit of time as I, well, I tried to bring my mind around everything that had happened. As I sat out in the veranda and I read and I took the sun, I thought, what in the world? Does the future hold for me now? How can I, how can I be of use to my fellow man, to my God, and to myself? I could only sit down in the courtyard for so long. I knew I needed to do something. So what I did was I looked about for employment opportunities for a woman. Very few in the days. I could have been a teacher, I suppose. Uh, that did not fit my nature, as I'm a businesswoman at heart, and so. I looked into the possibility of, of running a lodging house. And there were several in St. Augustine, and a good friend of ours asked me if I would take over the duties of running his lodging house. And I did so. And at that time, I brought Eliza with me because, sadly, her dear husband, her husband was a doctor. He left through the city gates of St. Augustine, and he was murdered by the Seminoles on his way to see a patient. So Eliza was devastated, and the two of us moved into a lodging home, an inn, if you will, on the Bayfront, and I ran that for some time. This would have been in the 1830s. Indeed, I was. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking to the visitors. There were six, six boarding houses, that's what they were called, six boarding houses in St. Augustine at that time. And then the year we became a state of the United States, 1845, as you know. And that changed that year, changed a good number of things for me. The year we became the 27th state of the United States was the year that I lost my dear Eliza. She passed away. And I, I looked about. I looked about for another challenge. I left that boarding house. I ran another on St. George Street. And what I wanted to do was to own my own boarding house, a private boarding house, and run it as I had the plantation. That's what I did. We were in the process of selling off some of the land during that time. In the late 1840s, I went to a boarding house on one of the oldest streets in St. Augustine, on Hospital Street. The Spanish Hospital was there, and what they call, I believe today, Avalie Street. And I went to work for Mrs. Anderson, who had owned a very successful boarding house there. And over a period of time, Mrs. Anderson had left Florida. I was able to purchase my boarding house. And now I had my own boarding house. And it was in 1855. I added on to the old building, and I began to have the finest of guests there. St. Augustine at this time, and in the years preceding it, had become a rather rowdy town. There were any number of immigrants. When I fled here, I was by far not the only person. There were many, many immigrants to St. Augustine fleeing from the danger of the Seminoles, and they needed a place to stay. And that, the early lodging houses that I ran, many of the people stayed there. My clientele changed somewhat when I owned my boarding house, Miss Fascio's boarding house, I called it. I began to get wealthy clientele from the north. You see, many people by this time 
had found out that Florida had wonderful weather, that citrus fruit grew everywhere, and they wished to come down and take part in that. Also, there were any number of invalids in St. Augustine coming down from the north at that time, which is not to say it wasn't touched by the wars. And the fact that we have so many nationalities living here, from the original Spanish, the British, the Germans, every culture, I believe, is represented, the Menorcans. That's the type of town we were, very active, although quiet in its own way as far as business. We didn't have industry, but of course we had a a wonderful uh, citrus business. (laughs) Many farmers were selling their citrus up north. The Seminole War was waning. People were beginning to feel safe coming down here. What was your clientele like at the boarding house? Well, we had many very wealthy people from the north. from New York, from Philadelphia, from all throughout the North. And you see my reputation spread when those people would return. I had so very many people, wealthy people, who wished to come to my boarding house. They had to make reservations, and they had to have a recommendation in order to stay with me. That's the type of person that we entertained. I considered it to be a home for them as far as it being safe. I had the very high standards and the decor and certainly in the cuisine. Most of our guests did stay for some time. It was not an overnight. They stayed for some time, some for the entire winter season, which of course was our most popular season, some for weeks at a time. Many people returned year after year after year and found it enjoyable and told their friends, my boarding house is called a private boarding house, and it was for the elite. All stayed with me as ship's captain. Captain came back year after year. You see, people are very interested in having conversations with other people who have the same interest and the same intellect. certainly would not entertain an actor in my boarding house. (laughs) You are Louisa Fascio. Students of the Seminole War know of an enslaved man named Louis Fascio Pacheco. What's his connection to your family? Well, Louis, as I called him. (laughs) He was born when I was three years of age, right there in the plantation in New Switzerland. And his father was an excellent craftsman in wood, and he had been educated. So, of course, Louise was educated as well. I understand he could speak three languages at some point. We educated those that we thought could be trained, it could be taught, yes. I would say that there were certainly those who had no desire for an education who merely worked. But Louise was not one of those. He fled uh, the Seminoles during my plantation the second time. I understand he fled with the Seminoles and then all the dreadful situation that the Seminoles endured as captives. I've heard tell that he ended up in Tampa at one point. Whether he was free or not free, he was apparently owned by many people. Although when the time came for him to choose a last name, because slaves did not have a last name, he chose Fascio but ultimately found himself back here in La Florida and back in touch with my sister, my sister Susan. And it was really the two of them that had such a fine friendship with him towards the end of his years. He was ill. He'd been treated so poorly, but he was a very strong man, a very intelligent man too. And speaking so many languages, I believe that's what kept him safe and he was able to endure. Susan really took care of him towards the end. They had been friends from from way back then. Louisa, we've talked about your boarding house. Tell us some more about how you operated it. I'll tell you a bit about my cuisine. 
it was excellent. My cuisine, I'm so very proud of it. And it really is what sells an inn to the people up north. My cuisine was the best that you could find. <laughs> now, now my boarding house, <laughs> during its day, it was, a pri- as I said, a private boarding house. It was a far better place to stay than hotels were at that time. I always tell my ladies, my guests that are ladies, that they must never try a hotel because in a hotel, one would walk in and be surrounded by strangers in the lobby. How dreadful that would be. As they dined at night in a hotel, everyone sat in the same room. You would be surrounded by strangers. No lady would really consider a hotel. So I made sure that my guest was fed and fed well. We had a huge breakfast to start them in our dining room. My dining table seats 18. Oftentimes, we had to have two seatings. We would begin the meal with fresh eggs, with ham, with grits, with fresh fish. Snapper is especially good for your breakfast. Snapper has roe. That would be fried up, too. What a treat. <laughs> what a delight. Biscuits, freshest of bread, cornbread. I had a wonderful, wonderful chef. She had been with me for so many, very, very many years and stayed with me even after the war. And the people, then I would tell them they can, if they wish, explore St. Augustine, perhaps go for a walk or a ride if they, if they desired that. Or I could have a carriage meet them and they could, they could look at the old town, see the, the old houses that the Spanish had lived in and that, that old castle there on the water. And perhaps if they were sporting, they might like to fish or hunt. And everyone came back for the meal. The main meal of the day was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. That was our dinner. And, oh, the selections for that. Now, one way in which I interacted with the Seminoles was those that were there would bring in fresh meat to us. They hunted and they fished. So we always had the freshest of meat and vegetables from my garden. It was truly a treat. We had citrus fruit galore, as much as you wanted. A wonderful pie out of sour oranges with meringue on the top of it. And then my guests would go out and about. Again, exploring, maybe going over to the island. That was quite an adventure to go by boat over to the island. Maybe even walk down to the beach. That would be quite a treat to see the ocean for many people. There might be oyster roasts on the beach at night, or they could return and have any manner of shellfish and fish. Truly, by the end of the meal, one would be ready to retire to the drawing room for the ladies. And the gentlemen would stay at table and enjoy their brandy and cigars. And the ladies would enjoy sherry. And we might play cards, write letters, or just sit and gossip. (laughs) I thoroughly enjoyed that. These were cultured people that kept up with the times. And I enjoyed hearing the news from the North and sharing our news and our heritage in St. Augustine. It was quite a fascinating one for many people to hear. A seminal leader named Osceola was taken captive under a flag of truce. He was kept at the Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine. What do you recall of those times when Osceola was in your town? Osceola, he must have been a very brilliant young man. He was triracial, I understand, and sadly he was, he was incarcerated in the old Castillo, and I understand many of the criminals with him were able to escape one, one out the evening. Lord tells us that Osceola was too ill to be able to make the escape. After the escape, the Army took no further risks and shipped him up to South Carolina. He sadly 
count his days up in Moultrie, near Charleston, South Carolina. And he died there of the fever. He uh, left behind a wife and her child within her. And they're all buried there, my understanding. Tell us about your interaction with soldiers. The soldiers certainly would deliver things to me. I would entertain the officers with my guests oftentimes. <laughs> you were also in St. Augustine for the August 15th 1842 interment of the soldiers who perished in this Seminole War. It was heartbreaking to watch that day. Uh, even to this day, that's a very sacred spot, is it not? Where they buried them all, it was a massacre. All of the rest of them, unfortunately, sadly, were killed, and then they were interred under, under a huge monument in that cemetery. How did your sentiments about the Seminole change over time as you grew older? Well, um, my first reaction <laughs> to think of myself as a child being absolutely petrified of them, as I matured, I began to see the reason that they did any of the things that they did. Their treatment was atrocious in many cases. There were cruel, cruel men trying to control them. Andrew Jackson was distressful. And, uh, and so my heart went out to them. Fortunately, that time has passed now as I am uh, living now, and I appreciate that no end. If I may share a personal note, one of my sisters passed away. Leonora, when she did, she left her five children. She left them, strangely, to my sister Sophia. Now, Sophia and I had been together forever. She was a very sickly individual, so I always took care of her. And now these five children, ranging in age from a toddler all the way up to a young boy, or teen, and that was dreadful for them. Eventually, I had all of them come and live with me at Miss Louise's boarding house, and I took care of them all. And I'll tell you this, I have never been more happy in my life as I found myself raising these five children. For the first time in my life, I had children. I never dreamed this would be possible to me. <laughs> and we lived there, and we lived quite happily. I just wanted to share that to you, my fulfillment in my later years, has been my children. <laughs> I appreciate your interest in what we endured during the Indian Wars, the Florida Wars, as we called it. Terrifying time. I heard of, of a lady whose sister was shot sitting down in her dining room, shot by an arrow through a window by, by one of the people, one of the Indians, uh, shot and killed. So it was a very frightening time. But Florida has always had its share of brutality and primitivity. I believe my father and my grandfather were both drawn to that in some way and tried to bring whatever civilization they could to it. That's how I feel now as a, a lady in her later years with a successful business. I'm doing quite well, and I'm able to offer my house to my sister's children, and they are as my own now, and also to my esteemed guests. So, Mr. Swan, if you care to stay with me next year, I suggest you make a reservation. You're quite a clever man, and I would very much enjoy having you join us. Louisa, thank you for that kind invitation, and thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. My pleasure, sir. Diane, back to you. What became of Louisa? Well, Louisa lived to be 75 years of age. She had been born in 1797, so she had a good, long life. The boarding house 
was left to the family. And then in later years, it was bought by another woman. Today, you can tour through the historical house. It's called the Jimenez Fascio House, and it's run by the Colonial Dames of America. You can see where I sat up in my parlor room and the beautiful courtyard and balconies. And just imagine the time. And there are interpreters there that do a wonderful job of telling you some of the story, the life of Louisa and of the subsequent owners, too. It's always been, uh, well, since Louisa, it's always been owned by women. Since actually before Louisa, Mrs. Anderson. How did you get your start portraying Louisa Fascio? To start with, I got into theater as a reenactor. And I do virtually every time period. We did a lot of 16th century Spanish here in St. Augustine. And I've done British and I've done territorial. And that's when Louisa, of course, that was her time. I taught at Flagler College and Stetson University. And for them, I ran a Rhodes Scholar program. And I would bring my groups over to, to the Jimenez Fascio house. I was asked by the president of the Colonial Dames if I could perform interpretation of Louisa. So I had access to wonderful, wonderful research material. The reason they asked me was that I had already, by that time, written six other one-woman shows about historical figures in Florida. So that's how it all came about. And since then, I've been performing, called my play, Miss Louisa's Boarding House. I have performed it many times in many places. Most recently, the one that you saw was that they call it MOAS, Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona. It was a history con, so there are many historical displays and historians to meet the people, and there were interesting displays of weaponry and so forth. Our friend, Zach Zacharias from MOAS, gave us space so we could set up a table and chat with attendees about the Seminole Wars. And then there were folks like me who had performances, and I performed this Louisa during that time. I perform for historical societies. I've got one coming up this Saturday. And I perform for galas and fundraisers, for libraries, all over Florida. For me personally, it's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. I sort of went from reenacting to writing one-woman plays and doing all the research and then selling it to different places and then performing it, which, of course, is the biggest thrill because I can share Florida history. My mission is to educate through entertainment. So these women tell stories of Florida during various time periods, uh, such as the one I'm going to do this Saturday is for the Historic Society of Ormond Beach. They're going to have a history con on Saturday. I believe it's 10 to 2 o'clock. And at noon, I'm going to be performing my one-woman show, Dona Maria de Menendez, La Bastarda. She was the illegitimate daughter of Pedro Menendez. All my stories are based in fact. I love being able to share history as a living history, especially through the eyes of the women that lived it. I love accents. I love learning them and performing in them. I, the one I'm doing Saturday, I'll be I'll have a Spanish accent, and my clothing, my clothing is huge. I have a room in our house that's dedicated to the clothing the historical garb. I make most of the clothing that I wear for my show. My husband also reenacts and performs with me now. As you can imagine, <laughs> a room full and hats lining the walls. And like I said, I make the Victorian hats. Uh, we're doing a lot of Victorian performances these days. I have a small troop of people, and we call ourselves the Glorious Victorians. And we have a site, and we portray 
the time of the Grand Hotels in St. Augustine, the 1880s, 1890s. Diane, I almost forgot. You brought along a second guest with you today, Martha Jane, a cracker lady. Martha Jane. Well, Martha Jane Facetti. <laughs> Martha Jane, well, she's like we might call a cracker today. Her people lived in a small wooden house. I started to say shack, but that would be rude. Down around Fort Orange. And she was married at the age of 14 to a man who came calling to her house. So she had 10 brothers and sisters. So married at 14 wasn't that unusual, but he was named Bartolo Pistetti. And Bartolo owned pretty much what we call Daytona Beach today. He owned all the land down where the lighthouse is. We'll let Mary Jane pick up the narrative from here. He was a gruff kind of man. He was a fisherman, a great fisherman, and a man of the sea. And I married him. I ended up living in a shack on the river, made out of driftwood that he collected. We had a difficult life, but there was so much beauty to it at the same time. I raised my children there. I had them by myself with Bartolo's help, what little there was, and he went about fishing. No one lived there with us at that time. We were the only white people living there. He and the Indians got along just fine, and like most other people. He, he built a fine business of fishing and in a guide in later years. And then we sold a big chunk of that land to the federal government because they wanted a lighthouse there. And after that, oh my, after that, we were able to build a lovely big boarding house. We had all sorts of folks staying in it while they were building the lighthouse. And then when it was completed, all sorts of folks came over uh, to our little, our little spot on the ocean there to see the lighthouse and to stay at my beautiful boarding house, the Facetti boarding house, and to eat my food. Oh, I could pick up a fish. Bartolo would throw it up on the dock. He'd scale it for me. Then he'd bring it on down to my kitchen, and I'd fry it up for you, fresh as can be. Yes, that's the kind of life I had. I had many children, and we had a fine time right there. What period of time are you describing from the 19th century? Oh, dear. <laughs> 1850s through to the, to the 1915, I believe researching her. Her family continued on after she had passed and were very prominent in the political life of Port Orange. Today we call it Port Orange. Back in the day it was called Orange Port. And of course over on the island on the Daytona Beach shore. All of that land was Bartolo's land at one time. And when all the people came there, they built schools and hospitals and it began to expand. It was on the Mosquito Inlet. That's what they originally called the inlet there. But when the tourists start coming down, the visitors, they changed the name of it, and they call it the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse now. My last name is Pacetti. He was Bartola Pacetti. You know the Pacettis here in St. Augustine. There must be hundreds of them here. And that's where his people had come from. But he, he went out on his own with the property that they had been given in the land grants, and that's how he ended up Ponce Inlet. Now, it was actually my sister who had been shot by the Indian, by the way. I heard that other lady talking about that. It was before my birth, but I understand that it, there were Indians about at that time. This was back in my family's little little house, and they were all sitting down to dinner, and this Indian just fires his arrow in, hits my sister, and she died right there. It was a rough time. Diane, back to you. Our listeners want to learn more about Luisa Fascio and the other women in your one-woman plays. How do they do so? 
I would be happy to hear from people. My Facebook page is Diane Thompson Jacoby, and that's where I post upcoming shows. And I'd be happy to friend you and give you the information. My website is probably the best place to get more information about Louisa. And my website is www.mrsflagler, all one word, dot Weebly, and that's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. Descriptions of all my shows. I would love to hear from anyone. Thank you, Diane Jacoby, for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority and bringing along your kind friends, Louisa Fascio and Mary Jane, the Cracker Lady. Thank you, sir. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for including me. This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.